This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The uh, story about uh, the federal government preparing an ad campaign that is going to be designed to target young Canadians specifically uh, to uh, educate them about the uh, the concerns, shall we say. I don't want necessarily want to get into the evils because I haven't seen the campaign yet, so I don't know exactly how they're going to go on this. But they want to address some of the concerns about driving under the influence of pot. Uh, and this, of course, in light of the fact that there is uh, a growing number of uh, people right now that are suggesting that, no, no, you can you can be high and still drive well. As a matter of fact, some are even going to the extent of suggesting that uh, you drive better, you drive more safely. If you're on, on you know, do a joint and get behind the wheel, that's a good thing. Well, many officials don't agree with that. So this really kind of puts the onus on, well, police services right across the country when this legislation finally comes into effect. And joining us to talk about that is Klaus Wagner, Constable Traffic Specialist, of course, with uh, Hamilton Police Services. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Klaus, it's, uh, it's great to have you with us here. Thanks so much for being on the program today. Uh, like always, Bill, thanks for having me to get this message out. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this, because I know, you know, as, as uh, somebody who's been doing so much work in the traffic department for so many years, I know you've been there and seen all, just about everything now, uh, including people, of course, that have been under the influence of alcohol and other pharmaceuticals and things of that nature. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, since this campaign hasn't started, maybe I'm just going to throw this one at you from left field. What would you like to see them address if they're going to do an ad campaign? Well, it's like you started with, you know, people understanding that uh, anything that you put in your body, marijuana, any type of drug, is going to affect the way you drive. Uh, you know, alcohol, low doses, you know, we still allow people to drive, uh, it, you know, and that's where the, those are the people that are on the marijuana side are saying that. And, you know, I can't agree or disagree with that, but it's when you are high, like when you, and the testing that we do, there is a difference between someone that has had a little bit and is someone that is, is high by it. And it, you know, it affects all the, all the stuff that helps us drive better. It affects our optical nerves. It affects uh, our reaction time, all those different things. And, and that's what we test for. And those are the people that get, that get charged. Yeah. You're not a physician, nor am I. So, I mean, I, we, neither one of us can give medical, empirical medical advice about this, but I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, go from this from a common sense standpoint. Uh, and and uh, and that's where I think you're you're coming from. From this, uh, anything that you put into your body is going to have an impact on on the way you perform. Whether it's as as to play golf, as we were just talking about, or if it's to drive or to do a talk show or to, you know any any number of things. I mean, let's face it: some of the medications we take for for various medical reasons say right on there, you know, don't drive heavy machinery, stuff like that. So, I think that there's a body of evidence to indicate that that what we ingest, what we do with our bodies, can have an impact on that. But they counter that by simply saying, oh, no, 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 if you're high, then, well, you concentrate more than you ordinarily would, and you're more focused on than you ordinarily would, so that makes you a better driver. i got to tell you something, Klaus. Uh, back in my college days, I heard that same argument for guys that said, no, you can pound back a few beers. It actually makes you more alert. Uh, and it didn't wash with a couple of guys I know that actually got nailed for that. Uh, judge wasn't buying it, and I don't think ju judges are going to buy it now. No, and and the testing proves that when we do drug testing, marijuana being one of them, uh, we do physical, you know, tests and we do vital signs and stuff, and it shows, you know, you know, your heart rate being high or being low, or your pulse and, and your temperature and all that stuff, and it does affect you. And and I, when I go out and speak to the public, and and you, as you know, Bill, I speak throughout this province mm -hmm. with companies and and groups, you know, trying to get this message out. 
the people that were charging, as you always know, it's not the person that had one or two beers. I mean, we arrested somebody last night that was over 300 on, on their BAC. And it's the same with drugs. It's never just one drug. It's, you know, like you said, they may be on a prescription, but they also are, you know, are, are you know, a casual marijuana user. So they're not going to stop that. So now they have two drugs in their system and they also may have a beer. It's the combination of all those things. And like you said, you know, medication from our physicians say that sometimes, you know, you know, make sure you understand how it makes you feel or should you be getting behind the wheel. And some people, you know, most of us, um, you know, do that. I was just recently out in Colorado and uh, speaking to some other law enforcement out there. Um, what they're seeing on the spike of impaired, you know, drivers by, by marijuana because of all the legislation out there, which is coming here, a lot of it isn't the people that have always been using. It's all the people that never did before, and now because it is a, is is going to be legal in in some sense, they want to try it, and it's understandable. But they don't understand, you know, by trying that, you know, for the first time, how it's going to affect them. And if they're still also having a beer or their, or a cocktail or a glass of wine with dinner, it's all, it's the combination of everything. Well, and, and we should also mention, by the way, that we're talking about pot here, obviously, because of the pending legislation. And that's why this federal ad campaign is, is being undertaken. But we're, we're told about this no matter what anyway. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Uh, you know, if, if if I'm taking a pain medication, you know, post-surgery or, or something like this, I mean, you know, doctors will prescribe stuff and say, by the way, you better not drive if you're taking this. I mean, we do know that, that any kind of uh, stuff that we ingest, medications or otherwise, are going to have an impact on bodily functions. Yeah, exactly. And driving, people, you know, sometimes don't understand, driving is a complex, uh, you know, thing to do. And you know, even though we just take it for granted, everybody thinks, well, I just drive. Well, driving isn't just keeping it between the one lane and the other lane. There's a lot of decision-making constantly being made. And, you know, uh, you know, just adding any little thing, stress, speed. Uh, you know, I, I used to have people say to me, too, I drive better at 140 on the highway. I'm more alert. You know, I, I react better. Well, we, it's proven. You know, speed, uh, you know, anything in our body and distraction is, is the number one causes of, you know, deaths and fatalities in this province and in this country and probably in the world. Um, you know, uh, again, people have come to me and they can't understand that we're allowed any alcohol when we drive. There are countries in the world where you can have zero, just like our G1 and G2 and under 22 drivers, no alcohol, because they realize that even the smallest can affect you on day-to-day difference. You know what I mean? Let's say... Uh Talk about how this is going to be uh, dealt with by police services, though, because this is an important part of this. Because as I say, there are some people, and I've had guests on the program, Klaus, and you've heard them, uh, that have said, no, 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 this it, it doesn't have any impact on your on your body at all. But pot's different than alcohol, and 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 that 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 body of thought is out there. Oh, but they, but they, is that the body of thought that actually the judicial system is going to adhere to? No, um, as you know, we have something called the, the DRE program, the Drug Recognition Evaluators Program. It's in the world. It's if anybody Google's it, it's Drug Recognition Experts. In, in Canada, we call it the Evaluator because that's what's in the criminal code. We have specially trained officers. Now, it's two pronged because this is where the message sometimes gets out wrong. Um, there is a program called the Standardized Field Sobriety Test, and that's the old walk the line, touch your nose type of thing. Yeah, we said that sadly the Tiger Woods thing when when he got it, taken. You know, away. And, yeah. Well, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I, that week that that came out, I was at three different companies, so it really hit home. And, and that's what they're doing. Those are standardized field sobriety tests. That is basically just like the roadside alcohol, little road test, 
it's just an it's just an evidential tool that we use. So we use that if you fail the components, now you're arrested and brought down for the full evaluation. Just like on the roadside, if you blow into the little roadside instrument for alcohol, if it comes back a fail, you get arrested because now we have the evidence. And it's no different than the, the, the two instruments they were testing in Toronto and the OPP, the swipe on the tongue, looking for a drug in your system. It doesn't say how much it's with what the officers saw. So, you know, they're seeing a little bit of something going on. They may not have enough grounds that you're impaired, but now they take that and then there is a drug in their system. So now they make the arrest. So that's on the, at the roadside. And then the big testing, it's been around since 1976. It's been in Canada uh, in the criminal code since 2009. Um, and the number one drug coming back when we test people, there's at least eight different drugs in people's systems. And almost always over 80% of the time, marijuana is one of them. And as some people might say, well, it's in your system much longer. We understand that. The testing says because of all the stuff we're doing, like I said, the vital signs and the physical test, at the time of testing, their ability was impaired by these drugs that were in their system. Is there a roadside test for pot? There's, like I said, there's going to be there's the swipe and the other instrument okay. which takes, uh, and it's being tested right now. And it was very very positive for my contacts with the OPP and and in Toronto it was very positive the accuracy of these of these instruments. They're already being used, um, like I said, throughout the world. Australia being the big one where they just they could do it to anybody, uh, and that is some of the legislation they're looking at, at right now where you know they they can try it and uh, it comes back positive or negative. Klaus, thanks as always. Uh, great to have you on the programming, and uh, I know we'll talk once this legislation actually does become a reality. And maybe the quick message we need to leave our, our listeners with is uh, it's not the law yet. So if you think, well, it's happening anyway, so I can go ahead and do this, uh, you can't. Because, uh, 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 you know, the law right now is that it is, it is not uh, allowed, and it is not uh, the sort of thing that you should be doing, and you will get yanked over. Exactly. And it's, it's courage. I always say to people, it takes courage to tell a friend, you know what, you shouldn't be behind the wheel. You, you've had too much to drink or, you, you know, we've indulged in some other things tonight. You know, keep everybody safe. Klaus, thanks, and we'll talk again soon. Appreciate the time today. No problem. Thank you. Uh, Constable Klaus Wagner from Hamilton Police Services. Not everybody agrees with that. As we told you, they, we've had guests on the program here that will take a contrary point of view. Uh, one of our listeners, Joe, is joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Joe, you uh, don't ascribe to this idea that, that pot is actually a, a negative influence when you're behind the wheel. Well, Bill, I just have to... Remind the listeners and yourself of our Canadian uh, snowboarder who was under the influence of marijuana doing highly skilled uh, technical uh, snowboarding things, and he won the gold medal over the whole world uh, who, who, were, who were sober. Also, the best uh, Olympic swimmer, the American, he tested positive for marijuana during the... And how many gold medals did he win? And how focused did he have to be? But so is, is that really germane, though, when you look at it this way, Joe? According to what the police are telling us and what the judicial system is telling us, they say it's an impairment, and if you're caught doing it, you're going to get arrested and yeah, you're going to get charged. So, and Ross Regabliadowitz, what's that? Went for, he did a predetermined routine, and he was brilliant at it. Brilliant. He didn't have to respond or react to things. He already knew what he was going to do before he even got onto, onto the course. And how do we explain the swimmer with the best <laughs> swimmer that's ever lived? Yeah, the American. I know, but I'm saying it's in, it's it's not that it's not germane, Joe. It doesn't matter. That's different. Driving a car where you don't know what's going to happen from one sector to the next is different from jumping into a pool and going as fast as you can or going down a snowboard course. Well, and even and I even mean, if it wasn't, Joe, you're going to get nailed. And if you're going to take that defense, 
and say, well, look at that swimmer or look at that snowboarder, you really and truly think they're going to throw the case out? I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying well, I'm saying that's the law that of the land. To, to snowboard, uh, doing the things that he had to do, he, he had to, it's not just a downhill run because people get killed, people get hurt every, every time doing the same thing over and over and over. He, he had to have his wits about him. He had that. Uh, it didn't. It, it, you know what I'm saying. He he. Uh, I and I don't even know. I, again, how much he how much he used. I don't know if he was high. I don't know if he just had a joint before the race. I don't know. But it's not relevant. It doesn't make any difference. If you're caught behind the wheel with this, and, and as Constable Wagner already told us, there's a swab test right on site. If you're caught behind the wheel and you're found to have uh, been under the influence of this, you're going to get charged. And it's happened in other jurisdictions. It's already happened in places where, where pot is already legalized. So I, I get this. And look, at I have no skin in the game here, right? I don't smoke this stuff, never have, never will. I don't have a problem with people who do. You know, that's your choice. That's fine. But the law of the land right now says you can't use it. And when they change the law of the land, the law of the land is going to say, according to what we've been told, that you can't get behind the wheel while you're under the influence. And if you want to challenge that, good luck. Good luck. But I think the odds are against you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Some good news. We were speculating uh, the other day about uh, now that uh, they've given the keys to Bedrock Industries for the Stelco operations here, that, uh, you know, is this going to be okay? Are these guys going to do anything about this? Are they just going to sit on it? Well, uh, from what we're hearing right now, Stelco's new owner, Bedrock Industries, is planning on investing, they say, maybe upwards of $250 million over the next few years into the operations here. Joining us to talk about that and the potential, I suppose, for what could happen is Bill Ferguson, president of United Steel Workers Local 8782 out of the Lake Erie Works. Bill, good to hear from you again, my friend. How you been? Ain't not bad, Bill. How you been, buddy? Top of the world. Life is good. Uh, is, is it ready? Are, are you at the point now where you're popping champagne corks, Bill, or are you still kind of sitting and waiting here? Well, no, I, I think the, way, the best way to, to describe this. Uh, all during the CCAA process, we interviewed several potential buyers. Uh, the one thing that we looked for uh, was people who had money to reinvest in the operation who were actually going to make a go of this. Uh, we had a lineup of people who wanted to buy the operation who were full of promises. Uh, at the end of the day, when you said, can you write the check? Some of them even said we could write the check, but when it came time to do it, they just couldn't do it. Uh, Bedrock was one of those companies that did have the financial wherewithal to be able to invest in the corporation, to capitalize the corporation, and to take it forward. So it's no surprise to us that they're actually investing money in it. Uh, as you know, steelmaking is a very capital-intensive business, and they're looking at the operations and streamlining the operations, repairing uh, what needs to be repaired to keep that efficiency there. So. Uh, this really is no surprise, I don't think, to Local 1005 or to 8782 that they were going to capitalize the company. We knew that was going to happen. Uh, and like I say, when you're at the table, you have a lot of people with a lot of promises. It's the ones who have the money and they're willing to invest it back in the operation that made the difference. That's why at the end of the day, Bedrock is here. Maybe, let me back up a step here, Bill, because you and I haven't talked for a few weeks about this as all this thing is starting to unfold and then finally came to, to the conclusion that it has come to here. What's your comfort level with, with uh, working now with Bedrock, which is really it's a venture capital firm as opposed to a steel company? 
but and obviously you're concerned about the long term, well, short term and long term uh, viability of the operations here in Hamilton and of course out at Lake Erie right now. Are you are you comfortable with Bedrock as a partner? Uh, as it goes right now, and I mean, there's going to be a voyage of discovery for all of us. I'm sure <laughs> that Bedrock, though, they seem earnest in it. They've run businesses before. I, and quite frankly, the relationship was good. It's always been good. I think that Mr. Kastenbaum has the idea that he wants to get into steel. He wants to make a success of steel. And that's been consistent throughout. Uh, Alan has said that he wanted to rebuild it. He wanted to rebuild the prestige in Hamilton. He wanted to be able to make Stoco a viable and productive company again. Uh, you know, the, the thing that a lot of people didn't see, of course, in this, this bargaining. Yes, they were a capital firm. Yes, they do have money. That usually makes the difference. If they have the money and they have the will to make this a successful business, then they're a good bet. The others that we had that were actual steelmakers didn't have the money. I mean, we had some people that were steelmakers and their track record were dismal. I, when it came time to put money on the table, and that's what's going to make this go. Do you have the money? No, they didn't have the money. Uh, a lot of them made a big fuss about they could get the money. At the end of the day, if they have no money, no capital investment, we're going to be back in CCAA again in no time. However, you got money, you're willing, you want to build a business, and we believe that's what Alan Kastenbaum wants to do. He wants to build a business. I, I think it is probably the most important aspect of this. Are you willing to invest in this corporation? Are you willing to grow this corporation? Are you willing to secure the corporation for the benefit of the city, the people, the workers? That was what tripped the wire for Alan Kastenbaum and that group. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that because uh, when Bedrock's name first surfaced some months ago as as uh, the potential, and then the Ontario government started to get involved in this, there was some concern in some circles, Bill, as you know, that they said, well, you know, you know what these venture capital firms are like. They buy an entity like this, they put a little lipstick on it, and then they try to dump it a year or two later. Uh, I, I'm just getting the sense, and I'm not trying to be naive about this, but I'm getting the sense that from what I've heard from Mr. Kostenbaum over the last couple of days now is that these guys, I'm not necessarily saying they're in for the long haul, but this is not just a, a quick fix and let's move on from there, that they, uh, they, they're looking at a long-term investment with these operations. The information that we have and what the feedback is from them, <clears throat> we'd be looking at 10 years, perhaps more. And you think that if it was a limited investment and they're talking about 10 years, if in 10 years' time, if we become the lean, mean, steel-making operation that everybody hopes we will, and that's what everybody's going to work for, I pretty well, if they want to sell at that time, perhaps it's a big profit for them, but it's also a big bargaining chip for everybody who works in that operation. You pretty well have your choice. You're not in a fire sale. You're not having this lineup of people trying to get something for nothing. I It's better for everybody. And if this is a successful money-making operation, why would you go anywhere else? Now, forgive me for being a little skeptical about this, but uh, and I shouldn't be talking to you about this because you're, you're the one that's been there, done that through this operation for the second time now in the, in the last number of years. Uh, we heard this before. Uh, we heard this from U.S. Steel when they took over that, yeah, we're going to invest this, we're going to do this, bada boom, bada bing, bada. Nothing, it, it never happened. And I know there was an economic downturn. I get that. But but there was still, you know, the, the, 
you at this point right now, you've got to be looking at this and just thinking, yeah, well, is there a wait-and-see attitude, a little part in the back of your mind that says, yeah, wait a second, let's just see if they can put their actions where their, 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 their promises are? I think that's true with every business relationship. I think that as time goes on, we measure our success based on uh, the positive developments. Uh, we're just at the opening bell here. But for being at the opening bell, we're looking pretty good. So we're looking at money rolling into the operation. Uh, we're looking at a company that, and from what I've, uh, inquiries that I've made with other union presidents that have worked for them before, generally positive. When we go back to the U.S. steel disaster, that never happened. As a matter of fact, the union was completely excluded from any talks on a U.S. steel takeover. And what we had gotten from people in talking to them about U.S. Steel's business models, how they deal with their employees, we knew that they were going to be the way that they were going to be. Uh, it's not the same feel. So I guess to put it clearly, we're at the starting line right now. Are we in a good place right now? Yes, we are. Is it going to be absolute guaranteed home run? No. A million things can happen. But for being at the starting line, we're in pretty good position at the starting line. You uh, you do your homework on this stuff, and so does Gary. Gary Howe, of course, is the, the president of 1005 here in Hamilton. And, and I know you guys get your heads together every now and then, and I know you've been talking with Leo Girard, who, of course, is the uh, the head of the union, the United Steelworkers International Union right now. And Leo knows all about the, the Hamilton and Nanticoke operations. Uh, he knows that inside out and backwards as well. It, it, have you guys talked about, uh, about working with Bedrock and about working with Mr. Kostenbaum? We haven't so much as independently, and Gary and I have had conversations about working with Bedrock and what it means down the road. Uh, we've gone through a million different scenarios. All I can really judge by is where are we right now, and is it a good place to be? I, I know that the international before, we've had conversations with them, quite frankly, uh, with U.S. Steel, and it was a disaster. I don't put a whole lot of stock in some of those conversations. However, like I say, for right now, we're looking at investment coming in. We're looking at changes in the workforce. And who knows? I might be back on this show again in four months screaming blue murder. But there'll be a reason for it because there's no reason for things to go south if everybody does what they're supposed to do. Uh, there may be things that come up. There may be issues that we have to tackle. All these things in the future. But for where I'm at right now and where it seems I'm at and from all the information I have, we're not in a bad place. And quite frankly, the alternative was liquidation. And liquidation would have been a disaster. However, I'm not looking at a disaster right now. I have a very good relationship with Alan Kastenbaum and David Cheney, the, the two forward men. I, they've been honest to us throughout the process. We've managed to make a lot of headway with them. I, so I'm looking forward. I'm trying to take a glass half full approach to moving forward and hoping that everything is going to work out. And the most important thing is, are they going to put their money where their mouth is? And they are. 
Well, I know that, uh, just doing a little research on my own here, that uh, you know, we talk about hedge funds and, and how they can be rather impersonal from time to time when they, they do some of these takeovers. But uh, Kastenbaum's background is actually in industry. I mean, this is this is a guy that knows a little bit about dealing with uh, with an industry, not necessarily steel, but I think he's been with Associated Industries, hasn't he? Yes, he has, yeah. And uh, some of them steel-related. Uh, he was very much into the um, uh, metallurgical silica. I have those types of plants. Like, he's, are, he's just not a pencil pusher in the head office someplace. No, uh, and again, interesting and in, interested in building. Uh, the labor relations feedback that I have on Alan Kastenbaum, and this is something we checked a long time ago, very positive. Uh, I'm not looking at any major concerns in that regard. Like I say, as of today, sitting here, I'm not unpl- I'm not unhappy about where we're at. I, and you know what things are like. Things can go a million different ways. Yeah. But it seems that we've secured things as best as we could secure them. Uh, we have the necessary capital coming in. I see smoke coming out of my blast furnace, and that's exactly what I want to see. Well, let's and, talk, I was going to ask you about the investment. Now, the number that we've heard, Bill, and, and I don't know if you know any more information than that has been reported publicly, but uh, Mr. Kastenbaum was speculating that uh, that uh, the company may be willing to put up about $250 million, which is not an insignificant amount of money. That'd be over the next four or five years, as, as he was speculating. Now, that's not a commitment, but it, it's a number that he's thrown out there right now. Uh, let, let's assume that happens. What would that kind of money do to the operations? Because i, I got to assume it's going to be divided between Hamilton and Nanticoke. Uh, and uh, you both have wish lists here as what you'd like to see happen to bring these things back up to, to the capacity that you'd like to see. Well, steelmaking, as you know, is a very capital-intensive industry. Just about everything that we get involved with costs an awful lot of money. Uh, so $250 million on the surface, a lot of cash. I, how far is that going to take us and what can we do with it? There's some obvious problems that have to be tackled. There's maintenance work to be done. And, of course, during the CCAA process, very little was done. U.S. Steel wasn't going to put a dime into the place. So we need to get the mill back up to snuff, make sure the furnaces are all running correctly uh, and dependably. And from that point, there's a lot of issues that need to be tackled. But one of the things that interested me uh, about the relationship with Bedrock was the thinking outside the box. How can we deal with issues like energy? How can we deal with issues like shipping? How can we deal with, and again, outside the box thinking, thinking of ways to improve the operation, to improve delivery, to improve quality, all of these things. There's going to be a focus on that. Uh, What we saw under U.S. Steel, just to give you the other side of the coin, was it seemed like everything that they did somehow drained from the operation as opposed to doing anything for the operation. I mean, U.S. Steel took away contracts. U.S. Steel got uh, corporate buddies in there to uh, leech off the system. I mean, there was a lot of things like that that happened with U.S. Steel that are actually we could do a show on them themselves. But what we're looking at now is taking that money now and putting it towards the operation and to secure the operation. I'm happy with that. 
it's it's interesting to to see uh, the, how this happens, and maybe one of the most exciting things that I know that both you and Gary how must be uh, pretty energized about is uh, in in some way, shape, or form. It sounds like you guys are at the table here, and as opposed to uh, what I used to hear from both of you in the old days was that you kind of were on the outside looking in when it came to U.S. Steel. That's correct, and U.S. Steel did have that philosophy was that unions should be seen and not heard. The welfare of the individual meant nothing. The welfare of the workforce meant nothing. It was about the corporation, uh, and you are privileged to work with us, and we can terminate that privilege any day. We're not interested in any ideas that you have. You just do what you're told. That was the U.S. Steel model, and if you look at U.S. Steel these days, they ain't doing so good. And if you look at how they're doing financially, not very well. It was an archaic antique, out-of-date system. And uh, U.S. Steel seemed to hang on to that. It was, a, it was a corporate philosophy. So I think the one thing that people are looking at as well is that this is new blood. These are people who want to make a success, people who want to tap into the energy. And again, that's how I'm going to conduct it. That's the approach that I'm taking with this, is that we're going to tap into the energy. We're going to talk to people on the shop floor. We have to build an industry where people actually like to come to work again. And when you go through the gate in the morning, you're happy to go through the gate in the morning. You're not passing through guard towers going there. And I know that's an extreme example, but it makes my point was that people didn't like to come to work under U.S. Steel. Every day, U.S. Steel made politics. They didn't make steel. So that alone, we have a shot at that. So I guess say we're lined up well. I Tomorrow may be a different story. Who knows? But as it stands right now, we're lined up well. We can look at the future. We can start building an industry. There's money there. Let's see how it goes. There's no guarantees. There's never any guarantees on how things will be, and I'm sure that Alan and David Cheney would tell you that themselves. But we're not in bad position for moving forward. Well, exactly, and and like I say, the economic downturn in '09 uh, did obviously have an impact on the steel industry worldwide, and specifically with you guys too. But on that point, I, I know you don't get involved in, in in the politics, Bill. Although it does have an impact on your businesses and on on your uh, your your members as well. NAFTA negotiations are coming up right now, and there's some concern in some circles that that could have a negative impact on Canadian steel here in Canada. Uh, have you had those discussions with uh, with the new bosses, with Bedrock, to talk about how that might work out? I mean, these guys obviously are, are, are New York-based. They have American ties, and you would think they would, they would have some connections uh, in Washington and New York when those discussions start happening. If you look at the point of view of the union, the international union, they have always been preaching the gospel of this is one big industry. North America is one big industry. Now, they've maintained that position, and they've maintained it for years now. Uh, There is somewhat of a lobby down there that says that that trade, there's no trade deficit there that should be continued. Uh, Steel that's manufactured in one part of the United States may be finished somewhere in Canada. But the overwhelming... The overwhelming thing is, who knows with Trump? Yeah. And I think that anybody will tell you, anybody who's being honest will say, who knows? I, sometimes it's politically expedient for him to do something that may not make a whole lot of sense. But who knows with Trump? That's kind of the, the wild card. I guess that's what makes it exciting. 
Well, exciting is one word I would use. There are probably a few others, too, but uh, we'll wait until we get some indication as to how they're going to go on this before we get specific about it. Uh, Bill, happier days than some of the conversations we've had in the past. Continue good luck to you and to, to the to the members, and uh, hopefully this is uh, the beginning of brighter days. Thanks so much for this today. Bill, anytime, my friend. You take, take care. care. Bill Ferguson, president of United Steelworkers Local 8782, with uh, some pretty good feelings about what's happening with Bedrock and Stelco. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This is a big weekend, of course. The G20 Summit will convene in Germany in just a few hours, as a matter of fact. The world leaders are making their way towards Germany. Most of them, of course, with a few stops along the way in Europe and in the UK. Donald Trump was in Poland earlier today. But back here in Canada, the news was, of course, about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And uh, his uh, trip over to Scotland uh, just a couple of days ago, he received an honorary degree, met with the Queen. John Iverson is uh, following the story, of course. Uh, John, of course, columnist with the National Post. Uh, the column today is Trudeau's charm has created a niche for him on the world stage. And uh, as always, uh, we're welcoming uh, John Iverson, always a great guest here on the program. John, thanks so much for the time. How are you doing today? Hi, Bill. How are you? I'm great. Listen, I... <laughs> Uh, if I were on my way over to any kind of a meeting, too, I would try to find a way to get to Edinburgh, too. It's one of the great cities in the world. Uh, and and I just it's a, such a fabulous story as I'm reading some of the things that the, the prime minister was involved in there. And it brought back so many memories of, a, of our time over there at Holyrood and everything else. But let's, let's talk about the actions of the prime minister. I mean, uh, this, is, this is different. I mean, things have been a little rough for, for Justin Trudeau on the home front here for a variety of reasons. Uh, the omission of Alberta in the speech and, and the socks and on and on it goes. But he seems to be a different Justin Trudeau on the world stage. Yeah, I guess. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a, a, a sort of familiarity breeds contempt type thing. And I do think that, you know, governing by photo op does become a bit wearing if you're here and seeing it every day. But obviously, uh, you know, abroad they can't get enough of it. I mean, I've just seen a picture from Hamburg at the Hamburg airport of the media lined up to, to take a picture of uh, him getting off the plane. I mean, there are dozens of international cameramen. Um you know, the, the, the readers of the National Post don't like it, and I got a, a volley from them this morning for, for complimenting <laughs> Justin Trudeau. But, the, you know, the, the, it's hard to argue. You know, Canada was just named number one in the Reputation Institute study of most reputed countries. Uh, the same weekend that Ipsos Mori poll ranked it as the most positive influence on world affairs. You know, he is getting the job done for Canada uh, overseas. I think it's pretty uh, hard to argue that he isn't. What, what do they see in him, John, that, that we apparently don't see here at home? Well, they, you know, I mean, I think some of the uh, the criticisms that were coming from, from my readers this morning were that, that um, you know, I'm worried about the deficit. I'm worried about uh, health care. I, I, you know, I, some of the, the more prosaic domestic concerns, which clearly if you're um, in Hamburg, Germany or wherever you are, uh, you probably don't care about. I mean, you're just seeing this sort of young, photogenic, dynamic-looking leader who's talking about uh, inclusiveness and um, democracy and et cetera, et cetera. It all sounds pretty good. But I, I think if you were, um, for people living in Canada, it, it, there's a lot more to governing than just uh, photo ops and making polite noises. Let's talk a little bit about the the Edinburgh experience uh, and uh, and the the honorary degree. Uh, I, I think we knew from the Sinclair side of the family that, that there were Scottish roots in in his lineage. I wasn't aware though that on his dad's side there's actually some Scottish blood as well. Yeah, and I mean we're talking going back a bit, but yeah. um, 
the Elliot in Pierre Elliot Trudeau, and 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 I think uh, Justin's got an Elliot part in his name somewhere. Um, this is uh, uh, they were the biggest band of cattle rustlers and bandits uh, that ever uh, lived in the border country of Scotland, uh, going back to the the fifteen and sixteen hundreds. Um, you know, I'm, I've read a lot on this. I'm from the borders area, and, yeah. and the uh, it's somewhat akin to back then it was somewhat akin to what perhaps the Afghan-Pakistan border is now. Totally lawless. Um, you know, murder and thieving were a way of life, and uh, the Elliots were the worst of the worst. So I guess probably one of them got out of town before he was hung for some <laughs> some offence. And um, and the, and there's a pretty clear family tree. You can you can follow it on. Uh, a wiki tree, it's called. Uh, that uh, Pierre Elliot's Trudeau's mother was a, was an Elliot, and and you can trace it right the way back to the 1700s. How was the brogue? I mean, he attempted that during the speech to the uh, the students there too. Well, as I said, it was it was marginally better than Scotty from Star Trek. So, <laughs> but I would not. He would not be uh, mistaken for. Uh, a Scotsman, I don't think. Listen, i got to ask you one other thing about the politics involved in this, too. He had the audience with the Queen, of course, at Hollywood, the Palace, which is uh, uh, just a stone's throw uh, from uh, the, the Parliament buildings, of course, in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most incongruous buildings I think I've ever seen in Edinburgh. Yeah, but, absolutely. <laughs> I still, uh, that's, uh, MP David Sweet from this area was over there a couple of months ago on a trade mission and said, you know, no, it wasn't that bad. And I said, David, open your eyes. Oh, it was awful. But anyway, he did not go there, and that was on purpose. He did not meet with the Scottish Prime Minister. Uh, yeah. and, and you commented about that in the piece today. Talk to us about that. Well, they're very keen to meet him publicly. Now, she met uh, her... Nicholas this is Prime Minister Sturgeon, this is. is, is, is a, yeah, she's the first minister. She is a nationalist, Scottish National Party. Um, she is the driving force behind the, what they hope will be the next referendum on independence. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going so well for that. It was going to be 2019. It looks like it's going to be put back. Um, but it, it would be a feather in her cap to be seen alongside Justin Trudeau. They're, bo- they're both... Progressive, they talk a lot of the same things, but obviously the one major difference is that she's a nationalist and and he, uh, we we suspect is is not. I mean that he he would like to see the United Kingdom uh, remain as is. Now they've been pushing for a public meeting with him for a long, long time. They met in New York recently in private, um, but she put out a message last week uh, for Canada's 150th birthday, just uh, you know pointing out the, the close relationship between Scotland and, and Canada. Um, and as I understand it, they were very taken aback to find out that he was coming to Edinburgh. Um, nobody from the High Commission, uh, either in Canada or in Scotland uh, or in, in London, uh, the Canadian High Commission, informed them that, that he was coming to Edinburgh, which is a bit of bad manners. If you think he just pitches up there. Now, obviously, they read about it in the press, but he pitched up there without any official confirmation that he was coming. And um, I think they're a bit put out at that. Well, and again, the optics, I guess, are a big part of this as well. I mean, you know, the, the First Minister Sturgeon was talking about an, another referendum uh, just uh, a couple of months ago before the UK elections, of course, and with the results of those elections, as you say, that's obviously pushed way, way to the back burner right now, probably not going to happen. But uh, when you've got a guy who's got the popularity of a Prime Minister Trudeau of this size, I guess photo ops are always important in situations like this. But it begs the question about where Prime Minister Trudeau fits into this this world stage right now and this play that's unfolding. 
uh, Brexit, no Brexit. Uh, Scotland, of course, uh, that uh, that that actually voted to stay into Brexit and, and have some concerns about this. And now they're all going to be meeting over in Germany. They're going to be talking about trade deals, EU deals, etc. Et uh, then there's the personality conflicts between Tr- or Trump and Merkel, between Putin and Merkel, and 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 then of course there's the Prime Minister May situation. You know, we're talking about Merkel and the negotiations. Uh, it, I get the sense, John, and, and I think you touched on this on the piece today, uh, a lot of these people around that table over the next couple of days in, in Germany are going to be looking at Trudeau and said, look, at, uh, can you be the arbitrator here? Can you, can you make some sense of this? Absolutely. I think he is the interlocutor between Trump and everybody else. Um, you know, Trump doesn't have any friends in the world, and, but he has Justin Trudeau. And, and I think that's how he's, he himself sees it. I mean, as I understand it, the, the um, Trudeau got a call a week or so ago, um, and it was Trump calling from Air Force One to say, we're going to get this softwood lumber, uh, lumber deal sorted. And subsequently, uh, it looks like it may well be on the road to being sorted. Um, now, I suspect there will be a payback for that, mm-hmm. whether it's over steel or whether it's over uh, in the NAFTA renegotiations. But still, there is a there is a relationship there which... which uh, uh, Trudeau's charm and charisma has helped carve. I mean, it would have been the easier thing to be to lack discipline and to to head out at Trump when he did outrageous things. Um, but even when it came to the Paris Agreement, Trump uh, Trudeau was, uh, you know, we we'll, we will agree to disagree, but we will concentrate on the things we agree upon. And um, it sounds like and there was a, a story which went public in Germany, Der Spiegel magazine, saying that. Uh, Trudeau was trying to appease Trump by keeping Paris out of the communique, which will come out at the G20. Um, Trudeau, when he was asked about it, says that's not how it happened, but he does want to. Uh, he wanted to uh, impress upon Merkel, Merkel the the, uh, the fact that everybody had to be on the same side. Um, so he he's kind of the bridge between everybody at the moment, and uh, maybe not so much Putin, but certainly between the EU and um, and Trump. And I think that's a valuable role. I don't think it's it's not Canada's hard power that's crafted that. It's Trudeau's winning personality. I, I don't know how good a hockey player Justin Trudeau is, but he's going to have to do some stick handling, though, isn't he? Because he's pretty much come down on side of, of a lot of the G20 attitudes towards things like uh, climate change, uh, immigration, things of that nature. They've got some pretty hard and fast policies, which I believe they will probably underscore at this meeting. Uh, which are totally contrary to Trump's views on this. Yet he seems to to want to keep that relationship with Trump. This is that's a that's a pretty tricky thing to do, right? But I think that uh, what he certainly what he said in the press conference was that Trump is willing to move on climate change uh, in some other fashion. He just doesn't want Paris in the agreement because he's you know he spent his whole campaign criticizing Paris as one of the things he was against. So. Uh, you're right, it, it requires some delicate handling, but if you can find the words in a communique which say we're all we're all on the same side to fight climate change uh, without referring to Paris, then maybe that's something that Trump can agree to. How do you see this unfolding in the next couple of days, John? And I'm not suggesting we're probably going to see any, any earth-shaking news out of the G20 summit right now, but there are some tensions, obviously, for a variety of reasons right now, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the personalities of the players. Uh, is 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 Justin Trudeau the the kind of alpha male that can actually facilitate the the kind of work that they like to see done here? Well, you know, I think they end up watering everything down. I, I haven't looked closely at the uh, 
at the agenda. But it, uh, you know, you're right. I don't think any major earth-shattering news is going to come out unless it's Trump making it himself on North Korea or whatever. Um, but yeah, I do think that that uh, Trudeau will be the the glue that holds everything together. At least they'll come out with some kind of communique which everybody signs on to. And uh, you know, that's that's important. I think he's he's helping to educate Trump. That uh, and, and what's, what's amazing is that he's now the most the third most senior member of the G7. Mm-hmm. Which, when you think, you know, France, the UK, US have all changed uh, changed leaders, as I think Italy too. Um, he is going to be extremely important in bringing everybody together to sign on to to something to make them uh, move forward in lockstep. Um, I mean, I just was watching this morning uh, Trump in Poland talking about NATO. Now he, he sounded more positive about NATO this morning than he did when he was in Brussels talk, at the NATO meeting. So mm-hmm. so it's perhaps um, people like Trudeau, not directly opposing him, but just kind of ushering him along and, and whispering in his ear. Um, maybe that's the, the way to, to, to see real change and to, to get him on side with everybody else. Nothing ever gets done at these summits in front of the cameras, you know, with the photo ops and the handshakes and, and the team pictures, etc., like this. But is, is there a lot of backroom discussion? I know the teams, you know, the diplomatic groups yeah, are, yeah, yeah. are all there, John. But what about the leaders themselves? Is there anything, you know, like let's grab a coffee for 10 minutes and talk about stuff that, that, yeah, that, yeah, that he they, can move that, that move the yardsticks here? For sure they do. And, and you know, the, the CETA agreement, the free trade deal, the EU will be something that Trudeau is going to try and, uh, talk to Merkel about and others about because it was due to come in on July 1st and now it looks not like it's there's been some problems with it and it might not come in until later in the year. So, yeah, I mean, they're gonna, they've all got their, their agenda items. Um, they're all going to be, be talking about what is important to them. Uh, but, you know, as we see on the, on the joint communique, Merkel was talking to Trudeau about it uh, in May. So, you know, these things are pretty pre-cooked. Everything's... Uh, May, everything major has already been decided upon. You, you mentioned also in the piece today, I was uh, fascinated, and I know you got some pushback from some of the National Post readers on this, and I, I understand that, uh, where, where they're coming from from a philosophical standpoint. But from your years of covering national politics, though, John, when you've got a guy who seems to be scoring points on the international scene right now, uh, with other world leaders, and certainly with the international press at this stage who are covering these things, does it matter at all back home? Do people care? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yes, I do. I, do. I think it's, uh, you know, most Canadians, if they could park their own prejudices for five minutes, would be proud to see their leader on the world stage playing a major role. And, and there's no doubt that's what he's doing right now. I mean, you know, Obama used to say that politics stops at the water's edge, or domestic politics doesn't. You know, Churchill was much of the same mind. You know, this is really how it should be. I mean, there are the uh, by and large, we've got a, a pretty uh, narrow spectrum. I mean, you know, when we replaced a moderately right of centre government, regardless of what people said, that's what Harper was, mm-hmm. with, a, with a moderately left of centre government. It's not a huge uh, spectrum, and people get really worked up about the, the differences. But but largely, there's a Canadian consensus on the way that government operates and and Trudeau operates within that consensus and I think that most Canadians should probably just uh, uh, 
be content with the fact that we're, I think, at the moment, punching above our weight internationally. Well, and you've written about that, and other Post columnists have written about that. As a matter of fact, a lot of uh, National Affairs columnists have written about the fact that now halfway through this mandate, uh, there seem to be a lot more similarities between the Trudeau government and the Harper government than many people thought were actually going to happen. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're, they're because, you know, as I've just, <laughs> just said, it's, it's not that they're not that different in many, many ways. They agree on far more things than they disagree on. And obviously they highlight the, dis- the dis- disagreements as points of differentiation. But, uh, but by and large, uh, you know, there are, there are nuances in foreign policy. Trudeau was uh, far more gung-ho about the United Nations than Harper ever was. But I think as, we're, as Trudeau governs, we're starting to see the fact that he's less gung-ho about peacekeeping, for example, and, and UN missions. And his... Uh, his far more uh, interested in bilateral relations than in multilateral relations in, in some cases. It's a great piece in the National Post. Check it out. Uh, Trudeau's charm has created a niche for him on the world stage. John, thanks as always. Uh, great talking with you again today. Okay, Bill. Thanks a lot. Take Good. care. John Iverson, of course, National Affairs columnist with the National Post. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.